We know now that in the early years of the 20th century, this world was being watched closely by intelligences greater than man's, and yet as mortal as his own. We know now that as human beings busied themselves about their various concerns, they were scrutinized and studied, perhaps almost as narrowly as a man with a microscope might scrutinize the transient creatures that swarm and multiply in a drop of water. With infinite complacence, people went to and fro over the earth about their little affairs, serene in the assurance of their dominion over this small, spinning fragment of solar driftwood, which by chance or design, man has inherited out of the dark mystery of time and space. Yet across an immense ethereal gulf, minds that are to our minds as ours are to the beasts in the jungle, intellects, vast, cool, and unsympathetic, regarded this earth with envious eyes and slowly and surely drew their plans against us. You're listening to The Seasoned Migrant, a show about culture, migration, and ideas, and how these have shaped our understanding of the world. I'm Leonard Vaut. And I'm Yusuf Amanullah. And on this episode, we're talking about science fiction, the social realities of imagined worlds. I think the first time that I became aware of all the cool and interesting stuff going on in the background of science fiction films and science fiction novels was when somebody mentioned to me that The Matrix was really just a a contemporary take on Plato's cave on how we're all supposedly blinded of what reality really is in this like fictional underground place and how only once we come out of it we can really see the world for what it is. And these kind of connections seem to be everywhere, even with uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, that's sometimes argued to be the first example of, of kind of modern Western science fiction. Even her own book, the subtitle of it was The Modern Prometheus, which, of course, is a reference to the, the tale from Greek mythology. And once we look like beyond science fiction in the West, we look at films like Gora from Turkey that tried to like challenge these these narratives or these these frames of reference where, for example, in this film Gora, they start out the scene in a Star Trek type command room on a spaceship. And there's some kind of imminent hit coming and they're all discussing what they're going to do. And it's all very, very tense. And they're all discussing all of this in English. And suddenly three and a half minutes in, one of the characters turns to the commander and is like, why are we talking in English? And says that in Turkish. And suddenly the whole scene restarts in Turkish. And that all becomes a commentary on how science fiction and the kind of media industry around it has been so centered around tropes from American films. And this rewriting of narratives was something that we discussed with Professor Gori Vishwanathan a few episodes ago, more in the context of the teaching and learning of English literature and the resistance towards it. And what we can see about science fiction and with the Turkish film that you mentioned is that we also see resistance within this field. But the really cool thing is that resistance is no longer just a subset, but rather it's creating new genres in and of itself. And that's something that we're going to be discussing with Yatasha in more detail.
So one of these interesting things going on in the background of science fiction that came out of our research for this episode was the really clear and really long-standing connection between colonial perspectives and the science fiction genre. And when we got to thinking about the storylines that we often see in these kind of novels or films often have to do with empire in space. And it's something that actually has been an important part of these narratives. And here to talk to us about their importance in how the genre came to be is John Reeder, author of Colonialism and the Emergence of Science Fiction. John, thank you so much for being on our show. So in the opening of your book, you reflect on Edward Said's argument that it would be unthinkable to consider the novel and imperialism independently of each other. So could you tell us about the relationship between imperialism and modern story writing and how the science fiction genre grew from this context? Okay, so I think when um, Said says that uh, the modern novel and imperialism are unthinkable without connecting them to one another, it, what he's saying is that not that uh, imperialism dictates the form of the novel or that there's some kind of you know, causative relationship of that type, but rather that imperialism involves a certain distribution of knowledge uh, and distribution of power distribution of opportunities, of ways of seeing, of being seen, uh, vantage points, positions, and so forth, that uh, the novel inevitably articulates. The novel doesn't really have uh, the choice. Uh, now, with science fiction, I think that becomes even more obvious and in more specific ways. Science fiction grows out of a number of different kinds of stories. There are very ancient stories like The Marvelous Journey, for instance, you have the Odyssey being, I think, probably the most obvious example. In the 19th century, those journeys inevitably articulate the geography of colonialism, right? When you go to a marvelous made-up place, it's always on uh, the edges or just off the edges of the map uh, that uh, is being drawn on the basis of colonial, commercial, and military uh, structures. The 19th century is a, a great age of cartography. Um, the British mapped the world in the 19th century, and they mapped the shorelines first, and they mapped the interiors afterwards. And the locations for marvelous journeys kept kind of running ahead of the, the mapping uh, into the places that hadn't yet been mapped. So I think of it uh, as something like a terrain or a surface that imperialism or, and colonialism predicates. It's, it's an uneven terrain. And when you take, for instance, the, the tissue of fictions uh, that you put together in a, in a story and lay them over the terrain, the bumps are still there, right? They may not be part of the story, but they show up. Uh, you can find them. And so the opportunities, the lines of sight uh, that storytellers uh, have are predicated on this larger underlying terrain. Now, in, in science fiction in particular, this has to do with, in a more particular way, with the sense of history, I think. The historical novel is a, a, an extremely important realist form that uh, emerges in the early 19th century. And... The historical novel is always in some way about the relation of the average guy, uh, usually guy, 
to uh, larger political realities set in the past, but the, the relationship between the present and the past is always the, the thematic engine of what's going on. Uh, in science fiction, uh, as that historical novel starts to get a little old and, you know, fusty <laughs> towards the end of the 19th century, uh, science fiction is a, uh, often a kind of story that turns that engine, that thematic engine around, uh, uh, the thinking about what a future might be, what a future uh, could possibly be, that reflects back on the present and says, what, what, what must we be to make that future possible? Either in a sense that, what are we doing wrong that that future might happen, or what could we do right to make that future happen? So those, that, that dynamic is very much there. And that dynamic has uh, a lot to do with colonialism and imperialism in the sense that those endeavors, those projects, uh, are very much tied up with a sense of uh, progress, uh, with a, a certain way of knowing and distributing knowledge around the world that presumes uh, something about who we, we, being Western European white men, are at that time, and, and it's clearest perhaps in the science of anthropology, uh, the dominant, say, paradigm of uh, 19th century uh, anthropology was a developmental model where you would read the difference between European and other civilizations as the difference between a developed present and a underdeveloped or premature past. So you could use the marriage practices in the North American Indians not as evidence that there are different ways for human communities to be, but as evidence of a previous stage of European civilization that has been surpassed in, in uh, progress into the European present. Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness is uh, a good example of this kind of temporality, whereas Marlowe on his boat goes up the river into the center of Africa. He looks at the, the African landscape in various ways as another world or as the primeval past. And they're kind of equal to one another. But it's clear that as he goes up the river into the heart of darkness, he's somehow going back to the origins of Western civilization. And that's very explicit in the very beginning of the novel when Marlowe is floating on the Thames with his interlocutors and says, here too, it was the land of darkness 2,000 years ago. So the Africa is read as Europe's past. So spatial travel becomes time travel, and it's very easy for that to turn into science fiction. Okay, so that uh, this, this sense of ourselves being the past of a possible future then turns into ideas about, well, what could that possible future be? Would it be hyper-urban, you know, what hap what's going to happen to human anatomy? You get this trope of, you know, little tiny men with great big heads. Uh, that uh, becomes a kind of a meme of early science fiction and so on. So this distribution of uh, knowledge about the world that anthropology and later ethnology and ethnography articulate is one of the, the ways that science fiction then maps the future or imagines a possible future. And 
relates to it because these versions of the other that are encountered as uh, European colonial scientists go around the world can on, in some ways, they're simply read as projections of the self, right? Of the, you know, they, they are our past. But there's always that other uh, possibility that they're encountered as radically other possibilities that they say, oh, we could be different or we are not what we thought we were. We have to re-examine ourselves in response to this. And I think science fiction uh, also does that a good deal of the time. And John, what has been the influence of the idea of progress in science fiction fantasies? And how have they often revealed problematic ideologies? Well, I think the idea of progress is probably the dominant ideology of a lot of science fiction. And one of the, the most important underlying kind of ideological structures to science fiction in general. And sometimes it's simply naively celebrated. Sometimes it's critically interrogated. Uh, and a lot of the difference between second-rate and first-rate science fiction has to do with whether it uh, interrogates progress or simply naively uh, accepts ideas about Western superiority. But the, um, the idea of pro progress is, is, on the one hand, it's an idea, right? It's a concept. On the other hand, it, it's a narrative. It's a story uh, that things get better over time. Um, but they get better in specific ways. <laughs> they, they get better because machines get more efficient. Uh, they get better because uh, people invent better weapons to uh, conquer the world and, and on the behalf of uh, democracy and freedom. So this kind of vacillation between a concept and a, uh, a story uh, in progress lends itself to all kinds of different ways of putting it. And in my, in my book, I kind of uh, gave a, what do you say, an anatomy of fantasies of progress in conjunction with colonialism that, that focused on four central roles or ways of acting uh, in the colonial sphere, the discoverer, the missionary, the racist, and the anthropologist. And I took my way of formulating those from, uh, the, from Slavoj Zizek, who, who talks about what he calls ideological fantasies. These are uh, things that you kind of consciously disavow, yet your actions show that you continue to believe in them. Uh, and racism is uh, the, the clearest and most powerful example. People may say consciously, oh, everybody's the same, but they don't treat everyone the same. Their uh, ways of interacting with people uh, still continue to depend on skin color uh, or perceived cultural differences uh, that are based on the construction of race. So um, I, I saw kind of four different ways that uh, this uh, ideology got worked out in the colonial context, the, the discoverer's fantasy which is, well, you know, I see that there are people here. Uh, I'm going to act as if there aren't, as if this is an empty land and it's just mine for the taking. And there were many, many ways in which that got rationalized. But the, the basic thing was, well, you know, look, they're, they're living on top of this mine and they're not mining it. So it, they're not using it. It's ours. 
Uh, they have this good farmland, but they're just running around shooting deers with arrows. But this, the farmland is ours to use because they're not putting it to use. Um, so there's the, the whole doctrine of terra nullius. The way I put it was, well, we know there's people here, but we act as if, and we act on the basis of uh, the belief that it's empty and it's ours for the taking. The, the racist fantasy, uh, which I already kind of explained, is, well, we know that these are people just like us, but uh, we're going to act as if they're grotesque parodies of people. H.G. Wells' story, The Island of Dr. Moreau, is a wonderful science fictional way of making that fantasy real, <laughs> literal, uh, where what Moreau is doing is taking animals and trying to turn them into people. Of course, what was actually happening was they were taking people and turning them into versions of animals, right? That's slavery. But by reversing it and turning it around, he made this kind of sense of uh, what racism was all about, kind of satirically and effectively very visible and uh, clear. The third one is the missionary fantasy, which is the fantasy that, well, I know that they have a culture of their own, but they're really dying to, to adopt mine. The true enemies of the people are the people who, among them, who want to stick to their old ways. So you find this in uh, a lot of uh, lost race fantasies. Uh, this is a, a kind of story that was very, very popular in the 1890s and the early 1900s especially. They always involve a set of white explorers finding a race of people that haven't had contact before and then having adventures there. And there's always a beautiful princess there that falls in love with one of the white explorers. But there are also evil priests who try to keep the, what, the people faithful to the old, evil, wicked, pagan gods. Uh, and this is the missionary fantasy, that the people are really dying to become Christians. That's, that's their, their deep... Uh, desire. Uh, and then the fourth one, of course, is the, uh, the fourth of these fantasies is the anthropologist fantasy, which is that I know that we're all here at the same time, but they're actually vestiges of the past. They don't really fully exist in the present. And, and they're, they're, uh, they're destined to extinction. And, and this is, you know, manifest destiny in the United States is basically a way of turning that into an apology for genocide against the Native American populations that had to be moved out or extinguished in order for settler projects to uh, spread across the entire country. And so what has been the legacy of all of this for contemporary popular culture, especially for films? I, I think contemporary film uh, very often articulates uh, c contemporary science fiction film and uh, superhero film, um, you know, the Marvel uh, superhero movies, the Star Trek, the Star Wars. All of these franchises do uh, have a kind of a foundational ideology of progress um, that's um, not necessarily part of the storyline so much as part of the setting. The glorification of high technology and, and the magical power of high technology, you know, in Star Trek, you know, you walk into your, your cabin and you say, computer, give me a sirloin and a Manhattan and out it pops. You know, there's no, where, where's the, where's that coming from? You know, it's just magic. Uh, and, and, you know, Star Trek is famous for having the first multiracial casting 
uh, on its command that you know these are these are explicitly liberal, uh, tolerant storytellers, but there's this underlying sense that Western industrial technology is the future, uh, is what's going to happen, uh, and the way that the multiracial command force of the enterprise comes together is by assimilating to that order, right? So, I mean, I think even something like um, Wakanda and Black Panther, you know, it, it, it's, it's very nice in that it's in Africa and it's kind of, there's a, certainly a, a, a civil rights type message uh, that's contrary to white uh, racism going on there. At the same time, its superiority is articulated in exactly the terms of this uh, Western sense of technological advancement. Uh, it's, not, it's not usually the case that these future societies are better because they're explicitly because they treat women better or because, they, because they're not homophobic, uh, but rather that those things, if they are there, are enabled by there are, they're having achieved this uh, level of wealth and power based on the technology. I think there are, there are definitely films that don't do that. They don't tend to be the big franchise films. There are a couple of films about the U.S.-Mexican border, the 2008 film by Alex Rivera, Sleep Dealers, uh, a wonderful film. It's not widely distributed, but it is very widely known in science fiction critical circles now and acknowledged as a, as a really great film. The, the fiction there is that the Americans finally figure out a way to have Mexican labor without the Mexicans, to get into little sweatshops on the Mexican side of the border and uh, get into remote control suits where they can do jobs that are actually located on the other side of the border. Uh, and all kinds of horrible things can happen to them. They can get killed uh, on the job and so forth. They can be made to work for uh, long periods of time simply because they're totally invisible uh, on the American side of the border. So really, that, that's, there's a lot more going on in the film than just that, but that's kind of the central premise. Uh, another film, uh, Gareth Edwards' film, 2010, Monsters. I don't know if you guys are familiar with this film, uh, is a film that kind of predicts a lot of Trumpism <laughs> because it's all about this wall <laughs> that divides uh, Mexico and the United States. But the, the, um, the fiction is that Mexico has been invaded by uh, extraterrestrials. And this wall is keeping the extraterrestrials out of uh, America. And uh, are the two heroes are in, in Mexico and they have to travel through it and get, get up to the United States to get, to get out of it. And what you realize as you're going along is that actually these extraterrestrial uh, creatures who are uh, kind of mysterious and fascinating and oddly beautiful don't ever hurt anyone. But a lot of damage is done by military strikes against them. <laughs> Okay, by, by the Americans flying and bombing them and, you know, killing a lot of people in, in, the, uh, in the process. And when the, the heroes uh, finally do get across uh, into Texas, they find out, well, yeah, the, the creatures are here too. <laughs> the wall hasn't kept them out. 
and then they get killed by a U.S. military strike against uh, some creatures. So it's a it's a very interesting film. But you can see that you know these two films, Sleep Dealer and um, Monsters, uh, uh, do not continue or you know uh, perpetuate this, uh, disseminate further this sense of inevitable Western technological superiority. They call attention to the violence. They call attention to the exploitation. They call attention to the the ongoing north-south disparities in wealth uh, that are the legacy of colonialism. So far, we've touched upon these groundbreaking movies that have looked at science fiction from a different perspective, but that only really scratches the surface when you look at Afrofuturism, which has been an exciting and important push to reshape what science fiction achieves and portrays. And so here to talk to us about Afrofuturism is Yatasha Womack filmmaker and novelist and author of Afrofuturism, the world of black sci-fi and fantasy culture. Thank you so much for being with us on this episode, Itasha. We wanted to start off by asking you how you would describe modern Afrofuturism and what have been its origins. Well, sure. Afrofuturism is a way of looking at the future or alternate realities through a black cultural lens. So it's an artistic aesthetic, but it's also an epistemology and it's a methodology as well for helping people to deal with any issues they have around the imagination. So with that, it intersects Black culture, technology, liberation, the imagination and mysticism. You know, and when you think about its roots, I mean, I I like to say that people Um, all over the world, you know, throughout history, have had a relationship to time and space. You know, people have always had the relationship to um, try to understand who they are in a larger universe, uh, one that informed their philosophies and which then undergirded their architecture and social structures, etc. But when I talk about Afrofuturism, the term itself was codified in the 90s. Um, But it was uh, the evolution of it or the popularity of the term was really a way of helping to reclaim or to remind people that people of African descent and the continent had um, specific relationships uh, to time and space and had a relationship to thinking about futures. And that thought process about futures Um, You see evident in, obviously, art and music and culture. Um, Sometimes people like to reference Sun Ra, the jazz artist who kind of came of age in the 50s. Uh, But you can go and you can look and see sci-fi works or futurist thinking with a W.E.B. Du Bois. Um, And just generally speaking, you can see elements of people thinking about time and space when you're looking at ancient Dogon culture or... Uh, you're looking at Yoruba culture. And, and so the term itself really almost serves as a reminder that people of African descent and on the continent 
uh, have always thought about these things. And sometimes uh, the way futures are, are contextualized and the way they're discussed or the way science fiction is presented, it doesn't interrogate or include those voices. And Yatasha, in your book, you write that Afrofuturism kicks the box of normalcy and preconceived ideas of blackness out of the solar system. So could you share with us your reflection on this? Yes. Well, it's so funny. Um, <laughs> it's interesting because to me, you know, I'm an African-American. So thinking about time, space, I grew up wanting to be a scientist. I grew up uh, learning a lot about history, seeing a relationship between history and art and science. It was very much just a part of my upbringing. Uh, I grew up uh, in Chicago on the South Side. I went to historically black college, Clark Atlanta University in Atlanta. And uh, I grew up where metaphysics as a philosophy was just uh, a big part of my family life, um, but a, a big part of community life as well. So for me to learn to some extent that there were people who didn't know anything about that worldview and weren't incorporating that worldview into their discussions about futures uh, was problematic, obviously, but, uh, you know, depending, you know, at different points in your life, it's a little surprising. And I remember being a student at Clark Atlanta and, you know, engaging with um, a student who was very much into Afrofuturism, not using that term, but he's intersecting, you know, thinking about quantum physics and African technologies and wisdom systems and hip hop lyrics and funk music. And <laughs> he's talking about these things all in one. And I'd heard it discussed in that way before. But something about the way he was, um, I guess, speaking about it seemed very of the moment to me and sort of lit a match where I literally asked the question, what is this? And he didn't quite know, but we continued the conversation talking about metaphysics, right? Uh, and so I use that as a ground floor to say that these ideas are naturally occurring ideas within a lot of Black communities. and you know, whether you're in the diaspora on the continent, there's really sort of this overlap in philosophical approaches and a desire to, you know, really interrogate your future, uh, but coming at it in a really specific way. So Afrofuturism, you know, differs from some other forms of futurism in that it acknowledges the divine feminine. Uh, it values intuition as being a valuable source of intellect as valuable as our thinking nature. It uh, looks at time, the future, past, and present very much as one. And it acknowledges that race is a, a technology as well. Um, all things that are technologies don't have to, don't necessarily spell progress. Uh, you know, today we tend to think about technologies in terms of uh, computer-based systems. Uh, we're not always thinking about more analog dynamics as technologies as well, or, or processes as technologies. And I only bring all that up to say <laughs> that for me, thinking about Black people having a relationship with the future makes all the sense in the world. Uh, but for others, literally taking the word Africa and futurism 
and putting them together, it feels like cognitive dissonance for many people. And because they are not associating African thought or African diasporic thought sometimes with the future. Um, and that becomes the piece that people have to interrogate, right? So many of us, to some extent or another, are wrestling with, uh, are trying to decolonize, you know, are thinking, um, interrogate some of our educational processes uh, to see to what extent are we cutting ourselves off from ourselves or from our own humanity by adopting beliefs and structures which um, emphasize separation and isolation. Uh, so Afrofuturism in that sense has emerged as a process to help people push past that. But all that said, Afrofuturism and the fact that someone has a relationship to a future in space and time exist outside of colonial frameworks, right? So people are gonna be thinking about a future um, or some relationship to time regardless. And I think that's kind of what the reminder is. So when I say, you know, it kicks black identity into space, uh, it, the term Afrofuturism itself reminds people uh, that they may have been thinking about black identity or African identities in very limited ways. And Yatasha, what have been the science fiction motifs that have been reclaimed by Afrofuturist writers and artists? Well, it's interesting. I mean, I think there's some things that have been reclaimed and then there's some things that are inverted, right? So the cyborg, for example, came out of uh, really kind of the whole cyberpunk period. And, you know, Janelle Monet and a lot of her work really uses that uh, to parallel alienation or what W.B. Du Bois often talked about uh, in the context of people having to reconcile identities, being both Black and American, for example, right? And you know, in that sense, you know, I think there's a, a reinterpretation of a, a symbol many of us are, are quite familiar with. Um, there's, or the alien to some extent, I mean, there's a reassessment of, you know, the alien itself, which at one point in time literally meant, you know, people who were quote unquote foreign. And, and even today, when we use the term illegal alien, it's still used to in some way undermine people's humanity. Um, so you, I think you have stories where, where people are very much reclaiming that. There's other images or iconography that is a part of different wisdom systems, you know, uh, or that you see often typified in art and a lot of African art that you see in some Afrofuturist works as well. I think um, talking about the ancestors, <laughs> which is a big part of African traditional and African derived spiritual forms, um, I, I see that playing out in a lot of storylines um, where there's this constant connection to history. And, and other symbols I think are, are really, do pull from different wisdom systems and people are just kind of re-articulating them in this time. And in your book, you also talk about the long and rich interplay between African science and art. Could you tell us about this history? <laughs> well, it's quite extensive. Um, so I can't tell you the entire history of uh, 
the relationship between art and, and science in the African context. But I think it's important to, to think about how in the philosophy of different cultures really was the, the bedrock for what's evident in the, the architecture, the way of life, um, the food, the, the spirituality. And to be honest with you, a lot of the philosophy was very much in the spirituality, right? And then some of the, the science to that extent uh, was also in the spirituality. You know, I was reading recently about uh, the Dogon and there's this idea of Po, right? Which is the, the smallest unit of life um, through which all things spring, right? And this is kind of part of a creation story. Uh, but in essence, what it's talking about is the atom, right? You know, and so, you know, and there's other elements of that story that, you know, while you're listening to this story, you're like, oh, wow, this sounds like really cool. They are uh, parables, really, for these heavier weighted scientific ideas uh, that then become like a part of the, the society. I think that, you know, in a, in a lot of art, you always see sort of these dual images sometimes of masculine and feminine symbolism. So you think about the ankh, uh, which is supposed to be a symbol of masculine and feminine. And the ankh comes out of, you know, Egyptian culture. Or if you think about, um, you know, I'm even thinking about uh, oftentimes when you look at even Nubian gods and goddesses, you know, they're always kind of, you know, showcased in pairs. Um, the ancient Egyptian gods and goddesses, the Agduad, for example, are always demonstrated in pairs, male and, fem male and female. And in a, in a lot of the art, you see sort of the same thing. Some of the mask work, there's the male and female balance. And, and that's a you know, very metaphysical, philosophical idea of, again, this balance of not just man and woman, but masculine, feminine energy, as it's symbolized by, you know, this balance of thinking about your thinking nature and our feeling nature, and, and or in some cases, it's the third dimensional world versus um, the multi-dimensional world. <laughs> and I think, you know, and so those are some things that in very simple ways, you know, it's depicted through art and symbols, but they have these larger philosophical scientific ideas behind them. And Yatasha, what has been important for you when writing your own works of science fiction? What is it that you want to achieve with your stories and what tools has science fiction provided you to support those visions? Wow. Well, for me, I really, there's so many. What I like about Afrofuturism is that for me, it opened the door for another form of storytelling. And, you know, prior to writing about Afrofuturism in theory, you know, some of my fiction work, uh, for example, a lot of my film work that I was writing fell more in the line of like romantic comedy dramas. And when I started writing Afrofuturism, it really kind of opened me up and there were these other story ideas coming to me. And a lot of them were surreal. Um, they're Afro-surreal. They had magical realism. They had sci-fi elements. And I realized that you know, there's this wellspring of stories within me. Um, and so, you know, I just finished writing a graphic novel called Black Cube. 
um, which thinks about art and philosophy and, and Western binaries um, and deconstructing them, you know, referencing different Egyptian gods who sort of come back, um, which was, and that was a lot of fun for me. Uh, I'm writing a piece now that thinks about love and technology, you know, how love plays out in an increasingly technological space. And then I wrote uh, my Rayla 2212 series, which is really an exploration of space societies in the future. And, you know, thinking about how to build for those societies. You know, I mean, we just had the big SpaceX flight the other day, and I had the pleasure of speaking with uh, Space for Humanity and sharing on the launch. And I was really, you know, excited. It was this wonderful moment. But it was a reminder for me that I grew up in a world where people do go to the moon. They do go to space stations. Uh, vehicles were sent on Mars. <laughs> An actual song by Will I Am was broadcast on Mars, right? Uh, so I live in a world where the, those things are happening. And it's just a matter of time before we have, you know, other societies and groups um, who are able to live more enthusiastically <laughs> and comfortably beyond Earth. And I think that's, you know, ripe with a lot of possibilities, you know, thinking about world building, what we want to bring, what we want to leave behind. We certainly don't want to, you know, take these isms we've been uh, fighting against into any new future. <laughs> we definitely don't want to take them to a new planet. And, and so, all of that, you know, all of those worlds are just fun worlds for me to play in. Thank you so much to John and to Yatasha for lending their time and their expertise for this episode. It's been really eye-opening to see how a lot of these tropes of science fiction that we're so familiar with have actually had very particular origins. And for me especially, it's been interesting to see how people's perceptions of time, particularly what John was saying of this new worldview in the colonial time of somehow traveling not just through space, in terms of geographic location, but that travel somehow entailed traveling through time and how that new idea then led people to consider all kinds of, of new avenues of thinking like where they came from and, and where their current societies were going to go. And in doing so, how that then propelled them to, to write and, and think about the future. And so science fiction writing took on these thoughts about the future and made them into a genre. But the genre wasn't just a futuristic escape from reality. It was very much anchored in that reality. And so it was often used as a vehicle to place real anxieties into storylines and also inadvertently mimicked existing societal dynamics. And so now contemporary writers and artists and filmmakers are taking the genre forward to continue challenging our assumptions about the present by contrasting them to their imagined societies of the future. Thank you so much for listening to the episode and making it this far. 
We've got many more exciting stories coming up in future episodes and on our Instagram page at seasoned.migrant. If you have any thoughts, any comments or any ideas for future topics, please send us a message. Also, we love feedback, so let us know what you loved and how we could improve. You've been listening to the Seasoned Migrant Podcast. We'll be back next week. Goodbye.